sign, the potted plant. Okay, you guys get the picture. Okay, we are distracting people, and sometimes it's funny. Y'all agree it's funny. Uh, sometimes it's embarrassing. Other times it's costly, and sometimes it is downright dangerous. Well, the same could be said of the church. Distracted Christians and churches can be embarrassing. It can be funny at times. Uh, not in the laughing kind of way, but just in the caricature of the church, but it can also be costly and authentically dangerous. There are two areas where Christians and churches get distracted. It can be detrimental. The first few chapters of the book of Revelation record the, the telltale signs of a church that is distracted, in fact, seven of them, uh, that had lost their way. Well, the first area where we often get distracted, where we literally can't afford to be distracted, is when it comes to the revolutionary engagement of culture. This is why we exist on planet Earth, to revolutionarily engage culture. We see very clearly from the early chapters of Acts, cultural engagement was central to the mission of the early church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit so as to engage culture. And so let me give you some observations that I've made of the overall engagement of culture. First, the, the church was strategic. Okay, the early church was strategic, and what I mean by that is they preached in gathering areas, they used every opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus. They used miracles to preach Jesus. We see in Acts chapter 2, the miracle of the speaking of tongues, where 120 wild-eyed Christians burst out into the streets, proclaiming the glory of God in all these different languages. It brought a crowd. They leveraged that opportunity to preach the gospel, and thousands were saved. Acts chapter 4, the man laid at the gate called Beautiful, lame in both of his feet, miraculously healed, went dancing, leaping, and praising God into the temple. A massive crowd gathered. Peter and John leveraged that to preach the gospel, okay? So they leveraged miracles. They also leveraged opposition. When given the opportunity to stand before 70 of the most high-powered uh, people in all of Jerusalem, they took the opportunity to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, Okay, they were strategic. They also took advantage of every opportunity that was afforded to them. They went to where people were already gathered. Okay, they didn't like set up a building on the outskirts of town and invite everyone to come hear a special message or come and see a special movie or hear a special speaker or hear a special band or whatever novelty we are peddling in the local church in hopes of coaxing people inside of these doors. They went to where people were already gathered. Okay, they went into markets in, in, in common areas and neighborhoods, schools and places of entertainment. They were strategic. They were also very specific. They knew their message. Okay, they knew the message that they were to be about and they proclaimed it boldly. They, they spoke, they preached the name of Jesus. Okay, he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the savior of the world. He yelled out, turn from this crooked generation repent, believe, receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized. And you know what? People were moved by that message. They believed that the message of Jesus Christ was relevant to every single man, woman, child they encountered. They were not only specific, they were spirit-filled. They operated in a boldness, in a power that was not of their own making. Okay, they were not professional orators or the silver-tongued charlatans of TV evangelism. They were fishermen and tax collectors and commoners. Some of them were educated and wealthy, but mostly blue-collar. They were spirit-filled. They were also sold out. Okay, when they stood in front of 70 of the most, 
most powerful people in Jerusalem, and they were literally commanded to not even speak the name of Jesus. Their response was, we cannot, we will not stop preaching the name of Jesus. They were sold out. In fact, as we saw last week, when facing legitimate threats of persecution, the early church did not ask for protection, and they didn't ask for prosperity. Two of our favorite prayers in North America— we love to pray for protection, and we love to pray for prosperity. They didn't ask for either one of those. They asked for boldness. As we saw last, last week in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, look there in your Bible, Acts 4, 29, or on your tablet, or on your cell phone, or just on the screen behind me. Now, Lord, they had just prayed uh, a conditioning prayer of, of God's sovereignty. They conditioned their hearts to approach God. They said, now, Lord, look upon their threats. And you would think at that moment that would be the perfect opportunity to say, and now protect us. It's not what they asked for at all. They said, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? Boldness. They asked God for free and fearless confidence in the face of progressive aggression to preach the name of Jesus Family, i got to tell you right now, our culture needs to hear about something else. We need to quit getting distracted. Our culture does not need more conversations about North Korea or Russia, Trump, Charlottesville, the Kardashians' 10-year anniversary, current weight loss miracles, and who was rocking a jumpsuit at the latest red carpet event? Amen. Think about this. Tomorrow, our entire country is going to be looking up. A celestial event is literally going to capture the imagination and minds of the entire continent. They're going to be looking up to see a celestial event. Don't tell me this, this world isn't looking for something greater than itself. And you know what? We are, we are heralds of a greater celestial event. Not just the moon eclipsing the sun, but the Father who sent his Son family, this culture needs to hear about Jesus, and if we are not going to bring this message to culture, the culture is not going to come in here to seek it out. I don't know when we're going to be convinced of this, but the culture is not going to come in here to seek it out. And so many times Christians hide in the church, and we like yell out the doors, hey, the message isn't here. And the culture responds, we're not coming. It used to be you could put a cross on a building, and people would show up and go to it. It's not it's not going to happen anymore. In fact, you put a cross on a building, more likely than not, culture's not going to come. There are not only negative caricatures, but the church hasn't done exactly the best job of engaging culture. We've been actually downright pushing people away from Jesus. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to carry the message of Jesus to the world. If we won't bring it, the question is, who will? They asked for boldness. God said, yes. It's not wonderful when God says, yes. I love that. Verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were together was shaken, that is God's presence and power, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. We have way too much timidity running through our veins in the local church. And we have the life-saving message of Jesus. We need to pray for boldness. The Holy Spirit fills us. One of the primary purposes is so that we would engage culture. They were not distracted. The second thing they were not distracted is when it comes to revolutionary Christ-centered community. They had an outward and an inward focus. 
Okay, their community gathering was revolutionary. What was happening in the early church was not happening anywhere else. There are things that are supposed to happen here in this place that are not to happen anywhere else. This to be unique and miraculous and revolutionary. In fact, there's one word that described the early church and their community. It was devoted. Okay, they were devoted. They were devoted to the scriptures. They came hungry. They wanted to hear the apostles' teaching. Thus saith the Lord was a big deal to them. They wanted to hear the word of God taught. They were not interested in having philosophy preached. They wanted to know the word. Teach us the word. They were devoted to the scriptures. They were devoted to the fellowship. That was a very distinct group and gathering. It was, it was distinct from all other uh, community. It's Christ-centered fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which is the communion meal. Like when we break com- bread and have communion, those little tiny wafers that don't taste very good and that little thimble of juice. It was a little different in the first century. I mean, they had actual bread, and they had like a real cup of juice. Charlie, this morning, my little boy, he goes, Dad, can we just have a little bit more bread and some juice? I'm like, sure, buddy. I'll bring a couple of juice boxes and both, both bust open a handy snack, and we'll just crack that cracker. But here's the deal. They were eating together in remembrance of what Jesus had done. And they would actually eat together around a table. In the first century, there was no more intimate place than sitting down at somebody's dinner table. Well, I'd I'd argue the same thing in the 21st century. And we're so prone to not have people into our homes to to share a meal. Nobody cares that your house is messy. Hey, everyone's house is messy. Newsflash. Dude, I know your house is messy, Stephen. There's... (laughs) once. I remember those days. You'd find things in there science can't even explain. (laughs) Nobody cares. Let's have a meal together. Let's break bread. Think about how much unity can happen around a dinner table. And if you can't cook, order food. It doesn't have to be professionally, it doesn't have to be super delicious. Bust out some, I don't know, give me an idea, what could you eat? Exactly. Okay. So they were also devoted to prayer and praise. They prayed together and they praised together. They actually looked forward to seeing each other. They weren't like, oh, it's another Sunday. Dang it, man. IHOP church. IHOP church. They were like church. Oh, they were devoted to one another, giving and serving. I want to do a little bit of a flashback to chapter 2. Okay, because chapter 2 and chapter 4 marry very, very well together as it relates to Christ-centered community. In chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, Luke gives us a snapshot of the early community of believers. This informs, this actually informs what we do here on Sunday morning and throughout the week and in our lives. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You'll see that, that's the scriptures. The fellowship, it has a definite article that tells us it was distinct, the fellowship, Christ-centered community to the breaking of bread, that is communion and having dinners and meals together, and the prayers. Okay, so they were praying people, as we saw last week. They prayed together. And look at the power that comes out of this. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's powerful testimony. We already saw that power at work, the healing of the man born lame. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. 
We're going to look at that phrase, all things in common, in chapter 4. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were actually meeting each other's needs. They loved each other and were caring for one another. Verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were, they were actually enjoying this. And they were praising God and they had favor with people. They were magnetic Day by day, could you believe this? Day by day, people were being added to the community of believers who were, who were placing their faith in Christ. They were magnetic. And you know what? You ever played with magnets? It's, it's fun. Um, I enjoy it. And so you take two magnets, and my favorite part is when you like, try to get them close together, and you got the North Pole and the South Pole, the magnets, and they go, isn't that rad? Is anybody else mystified by that? I'm like, oh, it's powerful. And then sometimes you put it through a table, and you move it along the table, you ever do that? I do that with my kids sometimes. The church should be magnetic, okay? People should literally be drawn to the community because there's something that happens here that happens nowhere else. Okay, did you know that this place is to be full of life? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, that you may have life sortively or like mm, limping along or no, abundance. Yo, if there's not abundant life in here, where else is it going to be? If there isn't abundant, like, out-of-this-world love and grace, where else are we going to find it? The local bar? What other hope is there? But there's times when magnets are actually repulsed by each other. You know what I'm talking about? When you get two of the same poles together, and no matter how hard you try, it's like, they will not go together. In fact, the, the magnet kind of pushes the other magnet away. Isn't, isn't that kind of how the church has been sometimes throughout history? We like go chasing people and they, they're running from us and we're like, because here's the deal, you know what? There's enough condemnation, there's enough judgment. There's enough fake in this world. Nobody wants to come into a, a church and experience the same crap, excuse me, that they experience outside. People want real. Okay? They don't want fake. They don't want inauthentic. They don't want that inauthentic, toothy grin, Christ, toothy grin Christianity. <laughs> How you doing today? Oh, great. Everything's great. My world's falling apart, but everything's great right now. No, they want, like, in the trenches, Jesus is my only hope. I am clinging to him like I do breath. Real Christianity. And you know what? People are drawn to that. They're drawn to real and authentic and passion. And in case we have the temptation to think this was like an isolated occurrence and maybe chapter 2 was just like the only place it would happen. It was like this utopic moment and then it went away. Chapter 4, verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, were of one heart and soul. God was literally weaving souls together, minds. Very different people, too. I mean, this was not a group of automatons. These were people from all walks of life, all types of personalities, all types of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, just like what's represented here today. All types of backgrounds. The full number that is referring to every single person there, this was no small pocket of spirit-filled among the masses. This was a large group of spirit-filled believers. And we, based upon estimates, this is probably 15,000-plus people we're talking about. 
in Jerusalem. This is a massive gathering of people from chapter 2, there's a few thousand, to chapter 4, there's like 15,000 plus. And a full number of them are of one heart and one soul. It was revolutionary, it was miraculous, they were being woven together like fabric to form this incredible tapestry of grace. Being woven together. Thousands of people united by love for God and for one another. Radical selflessness was a a byproduct. Look at this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was no mine, which is so hard for us to even fathom because we live in a culture that defines itself by personal possession. That is our culture's, culture's emblem of success. He who has most wins. And we go to great lengths to demarcate between mine and yours. We build fences. We hire security companies. Online protection. Bank vaults. Mine. Yours. Starts early. Like pre-K, kindergarten. It's one of our favorite words in the Carroll household for whatever reason. Our little boys love the word mine. Mine! I have literally had a, a toddler, a little toddler, this little human being, just wanders around the house and destroys stuff. Take my car keys off the counter, put them behind his back and go, mine! I'm like, no, 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 clearly those are not, mm, those are not your car keys. You don't even have a job! And then I'm like down on his elbow. I'm like, no, mine. And he's like, no, mine. I'm like, no, mine. And wife's, my wife's like, oh, that's good, Chris. That's <laughs> Winning the war. Because <laughs> we're so conditioned. You know what happened in the early church? They just allowed that wall to dissolve. They let it fall down. There was no mine, there was no yours, there was just ours. They had all things in common. And, and this was not brought about by law or some political ideology. Ooh, it drives me crazy when I hear people bring up communism when, in relation to this passage. This has nothing to do with communism. This was literal Holy Spirit love and affection for one another that brought about generosity. And you know why communism gets brought up with this passage? So we can dismiss it and we can hoard our stuff. You think the Holy Spirit wants to, like, like, unpry our fingers from our stuff a little bit as Americans? Do you think there would be any possibility that we might have a little bit of an idol problem when it comes to our possessions? Moving on. They had everything in common. It's a beautiful picture, man. Common, it's the Greek word koinonia. It's the same word used for fellowship. They not only fellowshiped as people, but they allowed their stuff to fellowship. Isn't that weird? So often we like come to fellowship together, but we leave our stuff out there. <laughs> they, were, they had the audacity to actually let each other and their stuff mingle. Please hear me. Love, not law, compelled them to give. Write that down. Love, not law, compelled them to give. 
There are way too many churches and Christian organizations that operate under a mantra of law and obligation and not love, especially and specifically as it relates to financial giving and sharing of resources. They have their favorite passages they like to quote, typically out of the Old Testament. When it comes to pressuring their reluctant audiences to give, like browbeating people into giving. There's no place in the church. Family, we don't give out of law or obligation, but out of love for Christ and his church and each other. We just give. The members of the early church, listen to this, members of the early church were free to give and they were free to keep. They just chose to give. They had an awareness what they possessed was temporary, and they gave to the ones they loved. They gave to whom they loved. They gave it to Christ and to the church and to one another. And and you know what? 2,000 years later, we're still looking at it, and we're still enjoying the fragrance of this beautiful generosity. And I think in in some of us, there's this sense of, gosh, longing for that type of freedom. And you know the power that flowed out of this community? Look, just like chapter 2, verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles, with great power, that is dunamai, that is like dynamic power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They are preaching the name of Jesus. And you know what you can add in there day by day? Those who were being saved were being added. Back to the community, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Not a beautiful statement. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds, what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is rare. When we start to see our stuff as a stewardship, when we start recognizing that our treasure is a stewardship, we have been entrusted with time and talent and treasure. We start to recognize this is all a stewardship and we get to utilize our time, our talent, and our treasure for something greater than ourselves. This is more than philanthropic investment. They were selling their real estate, lands and houses in and around Jerusalem. It sounds so extreme, doesn't it? How many of y'all think that sounds extreme? It sounds extreme to me. It sounds really extreme. But then, you know what? I started thinking about it. Historically, it wasn't that extreme. They didn't know this. Can someone give me an idea? What year was this, that this passage that we're reading about? Any idea, like roughly? what? Stephen. Gold star. Thumbs up. Ten points. What do you want? Do you want a gold star? It's about 34 AD, 35 AD. 35 years later, Rome would entirely sack Jerusalem, burn it to the ground. Every single piece of land, every single piece of property was either carried off by Rome or completely destroyed. And the people were either killed or enslaved that were left in Jerusalem. And so when I look at this, I'm like, they had such freedom with their stuff they were, I don't even know if they were aware of what was going to happen in 70 AD. Jesus talked about it. I don't think that's what compelled them, but looking back historically, they gave what they couldn't keep. 
And we have a very short window of time that we possess anything at all. You can either leverage, leverage it for something greater than individual self, or you can keep it for self. I'm reminded of a parable that Jesus taught. A man had a yield, a, ba- a banner, crop. And he had more than he needed. You know what he said to himself? He said, self, I'm going to go ahead and tell, tear down my barns because my barns are too small. I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to fill those bigger barns. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, self, relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. The parable records that very night the Lord demanded the man's soul. We have a a love affair with stuff. Please remember it's temporary. No matter how shiny the car, it'll dull over time. No matter how beautiful the house, the foundation will crack. Welcome to North Texas. No matter how nice the boat, it's a big, giant, wooden hole that you throw all your money in. There's something greater to invest in. The early church was giving up was later to be taken and lost. They loved one another. They loved the church. They didn't see it as a huge sacrifice. And then Luke pans to a very specific purpose in the person and says, here is the embodiment of this revolutionary spirit at work. It's a guy by the name of Joseph. Uh, you know him as Barney or Barnabas. We'll meet a lot of Barnabas. But verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, he was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Think about this. The guy was so encouraging. They're like, no, 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 the name Joseph just is not going to do. We're going to call you Barnabas. You're like a chip off the old block. You're the son of encouragement. Can you imagine being around somebody that encouraging that you literally name them encouragement? Goes on to say, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So as I, I think of this guy, he's interesting. One, this guy, we're going to meet him a bunch of times throughout the book of Acts. His name was Joseph, but because of the way he lived, they called him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I'll tell you right now, the world can be powered by encouragement. It's so lacking in our daily experience to be encouraged, isn't it? He was from Cyprus, obviously a a man of some means. He owned land in and around Jerusalem, which was not cheap at the time. He wasn't only encouraging, though, he was generous. He sold a plot of land, and he brought the entire sale value and laid it at the apostles' feet. You will notice in this verse, it does not mention him saying how he wanted the money to be spent. I find it fascinating when people give to the church, and they're like, here you go, but I need you to spend it on this. Like pushing their own agenda. And he didn't ask for a plaque or a brick with his name on it or a path to be named after him or a building to bear his name. He just laid it at the apostles' feet. Just simple. You're just giving. There was no fanfare, no round of applause. He simply laid it at the apostles' feet. I think there's something beautiful about our offering boxes. You know, one thing to notice, you'll notice there's no arm on the side. That's not a slot machine. Okay, sometimes we have this thought, like, we give to God, seven, 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 like, oh, if I give, I'm pushed down and running over and pouring over into my lap. Look, we're so committed to prosperity. 
What if prosperity in God's economy is you having less, not more? What if having more isn't a blessing that we think it is? It's simple. We just mingle our offerings together. That's a place where all things are in common. We put our offering in there and they mingle together, just like we mingle right in here. Our stuff fellowships with our lives. He was a man who believed in Jesus. And we see this beautiful picture of him long before his later missionary journeys, long before he would serve as a bridge between Paul and a skeptical group of apostles. Long before he planted churches, he simply was an encourager who gave. And here we are a couple thousand years later, reflecting on his life. A very fruitful time in the early church. But just like a big old basket of like fresh-picked apples at times hides a few pests. This very fruitful church had a couple of worms slithering around. We're going to meet a couple of those worms next week. Worm Ananias and wife Worm Sapphira. But that'll be next week. So some applications for us. First, I want us to pray against distraction. We are inundated, constantly distracted, just constantly being inundated with information. Personal lives, community, as a church, there are so many things that get our eyes off of Jesus, and we need to be reminded of our purpose. I need to continually put our mission before you. This is why we exist as Firewheel Bible Fellowship. We exist to engage and develop. Engage and develop the unchurched, dechurched, and badly churched. I'll go into greater detail of what those titles refer to. Just know that that's the largest demographic locally. Into something significant, revolutionary Christ-centered community. That means we're going to reach out and we're going to pour in. Okay? We cannot get distracted. We cannot get distracted from revolutionary engagement of culture. We've got to engage our culture. And that engagement is, is going to have to be strategic. We're going to have to go to where people are. This whole idea of like sitting in the church and yelling out the doors, that's not going to work. Okay, we need to actually build relationships with people. They need to know how much you care about them. You need to love people. We need to love people. If we don't love people, God help us. We need to be specific. Okay, it's not just saying, praise the Lord, or blessings as somebody bags our groceries. It's being able to look somebody square in the eye and say, you are loved. You are so loved, God gave his son. That all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Jesus saved my life. And no, it's no bed of roses. <laughs> Not only do we need to be specific, but we need to be spirit-filled. I used to teach classes on evangelism. It's tough to pack a room on that topic. It just is. Every now and then, a big group would collect, and I would always tell them that there was one particular class where we'd take a field trip. Guess what class people skip? Field trip day! 
Why? Because they assumed we were going to actually go out and engage culture because the class was on evangelism. So if you take a class on evangelism, you just like think to yourself, maybe we're going to go share the life-saving message of Jesus Christ with actual lost people. But no, let's just sit here and talk about it in theory just in case one day I might actually bump into somebody who is desperate and dying without Christ. But anyway, so I'm sitting there and a class actually showed up on field trip day. And you know who it was? It was a group of students. And we went to the local cemetery. The whole time it was a, a trip to the cemetery. And I told each one of the students to raise the dead, preach of the gravestones. And they gave me that look and they said, this, that's impossible. And I said, exactly. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you cannot lead a single person to Christ. Apart from Holy Spirit filling. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and speak the words that the Holy Spirit gives us to speak. We need to be spirit-filled, and we need to be sold out. Y'all here, listen to this. You've got to lay your life on the line for something. Your, your life has to be invested for something, right? And I don't care how old you are or how young you are. There's got to be some point in time in each one of our lives where we say, you know what, I'm laying my life on the line for this. I'm living for this, and I'm willing to die for this. And I pray that each one of us gets to a place where we can say his name is Jesus and his church. It's worth it. Not only do we need to engage culture, but we need to be revolutionary here, Christ-centered community. Family, we need to be devoted. Okay, we need to be devoted to Scripture we need to be devoted to fellowship with one another. We need to set other things aside. We need to be devoted to breaking bread, having communion, remembering. But we need to actually eat meals together, guys. Like, actually break bread together. We need to pray and praise together, and we need to love one another. What are you willing to do for those you love? Just about anything, right? love one another, giving and serving. You know what? We live this way. It's magnetic. People are going to be drawn to it. Second application is be a Barnabas. Or I'm sorry, not be a Barnabas. We'll get to that number three. All things in common. It means to mingle. Fellowship our resources together just like our lives. You're never going to hear me a, preach a, a sermon that commands giving. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to preach a, a message that I pray ever makes you feel obligated to give. Or, Gosh, I'm... Your salvation doesn't depend on giving. God's not mad at you if you don't give. Bad things aren't going to happen to you. That's karma. You guys realize that? If I give, good things will happen to me. If I don't give, bad things will happen to me. Are you, what are you, what are you, what are you espousing right there? Is that Christianity or karma? Tell me. It's karma. When did karma get intermingled with the gospel? Dude, you are loved whether you give or don't give. You can be greedy and a miser and God's still going to love you. Doesn't that just irritate you? It's grace, man. You're never going to hear me 
telling you you have to give. But you know what? I know what's going to happen. The more that we grow, the more we grow in our spiritual life, the more we're going to give. And you know what? We're going to give a lot. We're going to get a lot of our, give a lot of our time and our talents and our treasure. We're just, we're going to be, and it won't even seem like a sacrifice. It's going to be a joy. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, there's a sense of like, wee, giving with joy. Paul said, if you don't give with joy, don't give. It's a blessing. We don't do it for applause or plaques. And please remember this, love, not law, should compel us to give. Love, not law. Love for Christ and one another is what should motivate all giving and serving. And then finally, I'll conclude here. Be a Barnabas. You all have done so good, by the way, today. You all have listened to a long message. Thanks, Renee. You guys have done fabulous today. You guys have been attentive. Every now and then, I'll, I'll catch eye contact with you, and, and when you, you go, <laughs> I have no idea if you're really with me, but it sure makes this codependent pastor feel good. Just like getting a like on Facebook. <laughs> but be a Barnabas. There's enough discouragement in this world. There's enough criticism floating around in social media and our daily lives to sink a million souls. Biting criticism breaks backs and suffocates. One encourager can breathe life into any organization, church, family, or business. Be an encourager. That in itself is magnetic enough to draw people to Christ. Did you know, I don't know this, but uh, I guarantee not one single person in history has ever been brought, brought to Christ through criticism. I don't know how I know. I'm just guessing. I've never seen anybody won over through criticism. Have you? You ever won somebody's heart through criticism? Never happens but one fitly spoken word of encouragement. Mark Twain said, I can go an entire month with one compliment, but I can't survive five minutes without one. If we're going to be critical of anybody, let it be Satan and his demons. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful morning of study and reflection and growth, and we thank you for our time to praise together and to give and to laugh and to worship. Y'all, let's do this. With our eyes closed, keep your, put your hands out like you're wanting to receive something. And in the quietness of your heart, just simply say, Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Holy Spirit, fill us. Father, fill us. Holy Spirit, fill us. We want to be revolutionary. We want to engage culture. We want to be in true Christ-centered community. Please fill us, Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, keep your hands out. We all come to him the same way, empty-handed. We offer him nothing but our life. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. He was buried, and he has risen. The Bible declares that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you want to receive everlasting life with your hands out, say, Jesus, I believe. 
perfectly saved my life. I want everlasting life. I believe in you. That is your prayer, your heart's prayer. The Bible declares you just passed from death to life. And now you can say, Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit to share love with a world that desperate for you. Fill us with your spirit so that we can love one another and forgive one another. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Empty us of everything else. God, you are good. We pray this in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stand together because it's time. It's time for us to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again, same time, same place, next week. And do not forget, you are loved. Now go tell the world. Go proclaim to the world. Go show the world that they are too, amen?